Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast for Sunday, October 31st, 2021. Today we'll be on the history of Reformation Day. Welcome to Grace Baptist Church. Good morning. I see we have a few visitors here this morning. Welcome. Don't worry, come back next Sunday. John will be back up here preaching. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Happy Lord's Day. As Jeremiah said, Happy Reformation Day. It's also Halloween. How many kids have been trick-or-treating yet? So, so somebody's already got candy in their home. So Emerson's going to be eating candy tonight. You going trick-or-treating again tonight? So if anybody wants candy, there'll be plenty of candy at the Raper's home. So you head on that way. So uh, it's a good day to be, be here. Good day to worship. Great songs to sing about the great work that Christ has done. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for letting us be able to gather here together as your people to worship you, to sing praises to you. Lord, uh, we can trust that you will hold us fast. Uh, we can trust in that promise today. Lord, thank you for your word, which we can go to, which is all truth, which is absolute truth. And we can open it here this morning. We can th lift you up. We can praise you. And we can grow in you. Lord, grow us this day. In your precious and holy name, I pray. Amen. So this morning, like most Sundays, we are gathered here firstly because we serve a good and holy and righteous and just God. We're here this morning because the God, God the Father saw fit to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin, born a man, to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death, to be buried, and then on the third day, rise again. That, that's why we're here, right? This means yes. Thank you, Garrett. This means no. Yes, no. All right. So, we're gathered here because we have a good Father. We're gathered here because Jesus, through His work, made it possible for us to be restored to a right relationship with the Father. We gather as God's people, as blood-bought citizens, as Christians, as brothers and sisters, in Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're united. We gather because of what Christ did for us. The reason that we gather has not changed since the first century of the church. The reason we gather has not changed. The why hasn't changed, but the how has changed in many ways. I mean, just, just, just think of how we're meeting here today compared to the first century. I mean, we've got chairs to sit in. We've got heat and air uh, in our building. 
We've got a microphone. We've got instruments. We've got the written word. In, in, in the canon form that, that men died to, to prepare. We, we, we worship very differently than the first century. But the why hasn't changed. We can look back at the great cloud of witnesses who have gone on before us and examine the ways in which they lived, which they worshipped, and we can see many changes. Many of these changes are for the good of the church. Many changes uh, cause the church to refocus, to reorient their sight on Christ. Many changes considered the missio dei. I'm, I'm teaching you a, a new phrase, a new word, uh, possibly today. Missio dei, the mission of God. Has, any, has anyone ever heard missio dei? What does that mean? You might want to be put on the spot. It means the mission of God, which is to gl- God's mission, His goal, is to glorify Himself. God uses examination and change to grow His church. He also employs examination as a means to root out sin. Within the history of the church, there's been many changes that have marred the bride of Christ as well. There have been heresies that were taught and defended by the very scriptures we, we, we have today. There have been practices that have been founded because of a high view of tradition over the teachings of Scripture. And there have even been translation issues that have warranted practices that were erroneous. All of these things to the detriment of the church and ultimately to the missio dei, the mission of God. Thus, this morning, Reformation Sunday, we're going to take a look at what brings us here to meet in the manner in which we meet today. For if history had been different 504 years ago, you got it right, 504 years ago, we would be worshiping very differently today. So this morning, we're going to take a look at our church history, which led to the Protestant Reformation. Who likes history? Thank you, Greg. If you don't like history, buckle in, because this, this is... This is, this is great. This is, if we don't remember any history other than this, this is why we're here today, meeting in the manner in which we meet today. Learn your church history. Love your church history. And then we're going to examine three doctrines, along with three passages of Scripture, which led to these conclusions that, that led to the Reformation, that, that encouraged the and influence Reformation. And then finally, we'll, we'll conclude with some brief applications. One other thing we're going to do as well, as we look at these, these doctrines, we're going to examine our confession of faith. Because these very doctrines which we're going to speak of are clearly stated right here. 
um, which is our statement for what we believe. So, jumping into the history, and I love this. I, I, I love history. I love church history especially. Concerning the events leading up to the Reformation, Michael Reeves writes, As the 15th century died and the 16th was born, that's the 1400s, 1500s, the old world seemed to die at the hands of a new one. The mighty Byzantine Empire, the last remnant of the imperial Rome, had collapsed. Columbus had discovered the new world in the Americas. Copernicus had turned the universe on its head with heliocentrism. And Luther literally reformed Christianity. All of the old foundations that once had seemed so solid and certain now crumbled in this storm of change, making way for a new era in which things would be very different. You see, the Pope was Christ's vicar, his representative. And it was through him that all of God's grace flowed. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine showing up here and your elders being the manner in which God's grace flowed? Elders, can you imagine that? I don't, I don't, I don't want to be, be an elder if that's the case. My desire is gone then. But it was through, through the Pope that God's grace flowed. And the church could access that grace through seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, the mass, penance, marriage, ordination, and last rites. So these means of grace allowed the uneducated, the illiterate, to have faith, and implicit faith, which was suggested and implied, but never really clearly stated nor truly understood. Let's look at the Mass, which was a means of such grace. One could, uh, would participate, but they would never consume of the elements. The bread, the wine, they would participate by watching and listening. In the Mass, Christ's body would be sacrificed over and over in an unbloody sacrifice, repeating Christ's bloody sacrifice on the cross so that God's anger toward our sin would be appeased. Once the priest spoke Christ's word in Latin, hoc est corpus meum, which is, this is my body, the bread and the wine were transformed into the very body and blood of Christ. Once a year, they could eat of the bread, but they never drank of the wine, lest some poor, ignorant, lowly person in the church spill the literal blood of Christ. In performing these sacraments, many of the priests were known to fluff their lines rather than learn the Latin. They, they just learned the sounds of the phrase. So when the parishioners heard hocus pocus, 
instead of hoc est corpus meum, they couldn't distinguish the difference. There was an issue, issues in the church that caught the eyes of several men leading up to Luther's stand. The, the, these issues became noticeable the more and more time went on. Wycliffe was born around 1320. He had grown up in a time when the Catholic Church was divided. There were two popes. There was the Pope in Rome and a Pope living in France. So there were ultimately two authorities within the Catholic Church. And caused many to question not just the authority of one pope or the other, but the pope in general, the pope in the office of the pope. And then in 1378, Wycliffe began to publicly identify the Bible, not the pope, as the supreme source of spiritual authority. Then came a man by the name of Jan Hus, John Huss. He publicly denied the power of the popes to issue indulgences. John Huss is often remembered for his dying words. You may roast the goose, which Huss in, in Czech meant goose, but a hundred years from now a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. And nearly a hundred years later, Martin Luther would come onto the scene. But before we go any further with Luther, we've got to look at one more name and one more action which contributed to the Reformation. Erasmus, a man by the name of Erasmus, in 1516, published a Greek New Testament. He even dedicated it to the Pope. The Pope said, thank you. I love it. Although uh, he probably should have read it first. Because Erasmus put a Latin version beside the Greek. That's not the issue. The issue was it was not the official Latin Vulgate as used by the church. It was Erasmus's Latin translation. It sparked issue. And these very thoughts sparked Luther to nail the 95 Thesis to the door, doors of Wittenberg. Erasmus translated in Matthew 4, 17, which we're going to get into here in a little bit, differently from the Vulgate. Rather than do penance, he translated it as be penitent. Thus we consider on October 31st the nailing of the 95 Thesis by Martin Luther in 1517. All right, I'm going to give you a break on the history. Because now we're going to look at, at these three uh, doctrinal issues. Uh, we're going to look at scriptural authority, and, and Caleb's going to put up our confession, which our very first confession of faith, you see it right there, is on the scriptures. And, and, and I want us to look at our confession of faith because this is what we believe. We, we, we've covenanted together to serve together, and, and we hold this, this document 
to say, hey, we, we believe these things. So, follow along with me. Of the scriptures, we believe that the Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction, and that it has God for its author, salvation for its end, truth without any mixture of error for its matter, that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us, and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union, and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Let's hold off on that one. So, with these events happening in the 15th and 16th centuries, scriptural authority was a leading contributor to the Reformation. Wycliffe saw the importance for scripture to be in the common language. Uh, he died for this conviction. He died for uh, his work in, in putting the, lang the, the scriptures into the language that common men could understand. As opposed to being in Latin, which only the academics and the religious leaders could, could read and understand. Therefore, the power of interpretation, with it being in Latin only, lay in the hands of the Pope and the priests, rather than in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. This is primarily due to the fact that the Roman Catholic Church used Scripture and tradition to carry equal authority for the life of the church. However, as Protestants, we see Scripture as having ultimate authority. We even see Scripture gives a, a high view of, uh, of itself. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3. And you're going to have to bear with me. I've got a brand new Bible here, and... These pages are stuck together, <laughs> and I'm having a hard time with it. So 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And listen to verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God. God who has all authority. God is supreme as creator. Therefore, God has all authority. This book we have here today, the Bible, was not merely written to be just a true commentary on Christianity. The Word carries with it strength. It carries with it power. Paul writes in Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, 
we might have hope. A low view of Scripture produces lives without hope. Lives without endurance. Lives that are defeated. But we, as Christians, with a high view of Scripture, viewing Scripture with great authority, knowing that Scripture is the ultimate truth, we spend our lives in the Word. If we recognize this book to have the authority it has, if we believe that this book is true, we're going to spend our lives in this book. We can no longer spend our lives in the things of this world, absolutely. When we open the Scriptures, we see God for who He is. What a beautiful picture we see here. We see Him as holy, deserving of all praise. But on the flip side, we see within Scriptures ourselves and who we really are. We see our sin. We see just how filthy we are. We see the results of sin in living lives that are more in love with this world than in love with God and His ways. We see just how much we deserve death because of our sin. But we see just how merciful and loving God is in sending His Son to make salvation and restoration to the Father possible for mankind. Within a high view of Scripture, we recognize that the truths taught within are, are for all of us and important for us to teach rightly. Second, we're going to look at repentance. Caleb, if you'll, you'll put repentance up there. And this is Article 8 in our confession. Of repentance and faith, we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and are inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God, whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy, at the same time heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, relying on Him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. Within Scripture, we find repentance. This was of paramount importance to Luther's convictions. Take a look at Matthew four seventeen.
Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Erasmus turned the world upside down with his translation of this, this verse. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent in the Greek is uh, metanoeo. The Latin Vulgate translates this, as I said earlier, do penance. Erasmus rendered it as be penitent. And then later translated it as change your mind. Today we translate this as repent. No longer are we offering penance as an outward expression of sorrow for sin, as if God could possibly be pleased with our ill attempts of sorrow. Rather, we are repentant, which is an internal sorrow for our sins, which causes us to turn from our sin, but not just turn from our sin, turn to Christ, our Savior. Repentance is a radical change of mind that leads to a deep transformation of life. Whereas penance is only a duty which attempts to atone for continued sin. We cannot offer any work that will restore us into a right relationship with the Father. can't do it. And I think we find ourselves guilty of this today in our self-help society in order to make ourselves right without ever repenting. We place around us safeguards so that we avoid sin. I, I, I see so often young men who struggle with porn just put a little protection on their phone to keep them from searching it, but never really repenting of the sin. I use that as, as an example, just so you, so you know what I'm thinking here. So are we just putting up safeguards or are we repenting? Are we turning from sin? We even go so far as to justify our sins by saying, at least I'm not as bad as that other guy. Our scripture calls for our repentance. Scripture calls for, for us to turn from our sin. To turn to Christ. It's, it's, this really is a simple message, folks. And I, I, I know you've heard it time and time again. But we need, remember, need reminders. How often we forget, how often I forget 
Luther's first statement in his 95 Thesis states, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Our entire life. He goes on to state in his second and third statement, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy in the third statement. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. This is where the rubber meets the road. Repentance is worthless if it does not produce an outward change. We're, 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 we're in the business of getting out of ruts, not keeping one wheel in them. Because what happens if you get one wheel in the ditch? How long does it take before you end up with at least two in the ditch? If not four, or make a major course correction, and then you're in the other ditch. Uh, we're in the business of getting out of ditches here. You can be sorry for your sin all you want, but if there's no change, your sorrow is without purpose. John eight eleven, Jesus tells the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. He doesn't just say, go. He doesn't just say, eh, make a course correction. He says, go and make a radical course direction. Ch change lanes, change highways. Go in a different direction. Sin no more. And Jesus' teachings on repentance is nothing new in Scripture. It's not like we get to, to Matthew 4, uh, 17 and say, oh, wow, we've got something new. He's building upon what the prophets had taught. The prophets' continual call for God's people to turn from sin and turn to the Lord. We also see in Mark 1, 15, this same passage, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Re believe in the truth of Christ. The kingdom of heaven, the realm of God's rule, has dawned in the person of Jesus Christ. And repentance is essential preparation for this kingdom. Next, let's look at justification. All right. On justification, we believe that the great gospel blessing with Christ, which, uh, which Christ secures to such as believe in him, is justification. That justification includes the pardon of sin, the promise of eternal life on principles of righteousness, that it is bestowed not in consideration of any works of righteousness, which we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood, by virtue of which faith is, which faith his 
perfect righteousness is freely imputed to us of God. That it brings us into a state of most blessed peace and favor with God and secures every other blessing needful for time and eternity. So justification is the next major doctrine that heavily influenced the Reformation. How is one made right with a righteous God? Let's quantify that a little bit. How is one who is a sinner with no hope but death made right with a righteous and just and holy God? Romans 3, 23. Flip over there, if you will. Romans 3, starting with verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thankfully, Paul doesn't stop there. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Received by faith. We are not justified by any works. We are not justified by sitting here among the gathered church. We're not justified because we call ourselves Christians. We're justified by faith alone. In Christ alone. Such justification brings us into a state of peace and favor with God. Justification by faith alone produces fruit because true faith is always accompanied with its fruits. We can rest knowing that Christ's work of justification is not dependent on our righteousness. Praise God, it's not. We can never be good enough, godly enough, holy enough, righteous enough to deserve grace. In this we boast, in Christ's all-sufficiency as our Savior. Lastly, we're going to look at a few applications before we close. One, Scripture cannot be broken. I found this little nugget this week in Scripture. John 10, 35. Jesus is showing His authority as God has given it. And, like many times, was accused of blasphemy. And he defends himself 
with a defense of the high view of Scripture. These Jews were ready to stone him. But they could not refute the fact that Scripture has authority. That the prophets had authority. Scripture cannot be broken. We can lean on this. We can rest on this. We can can hold it up. We can be encouraged by it. Every single word of Scripture is true and trustworthy. It's reliable. It's unbreakable. It is absolute truth. Second, repentance is a radical change of mind that leads to deep life transformation. We sin, but in Christ, we cannot stay there. In this life, we turn from the very way in which we are to go, but that is not to turn into a lifestyle of habitual sin. As Christians, when we sin, we repent. We turn away. We rightly look to Christ. This is radical because it goes against everything our society and culture teaches. We seek to serve Christ rightly rather than embracing every fleeting thing under the sun. Repentance is part of our daily effort to put to death sin which so easily entangles us. Then our final, third and final application. We're justified with sanctification, glorification, and adoption in mind. We are not simply made right with the Father just so we can continue in sin. Charles, Charles Hodge writes, A man cannot accept of reconciliation with God and live in sin. Because the renunciation of sin is involved in the acceptance of reconciliation. Paul never assumes that men may accept one benefit of redemption and accept another. When we are reconciled to God, we certainly benefit from justification but also from sanctification as we are molded into the image of Christ. We benefit from glorification in that one day we will be made perfect and have perfect reconciliation with the Father. And in the meantime, we can marvel in the great grace of our adoption We are now children of God. We're heirs with Christ. So let this day be a benefit not only from the Protestant Reformation, but also from the Reformation of our lives. I implore you, as Paul did, live out your reconciliation to God through Christ by holy living, Holy lives marked by separation from the ways of unbelievers. Hmm. For in this reconciliation comes power 
for holy living. If you don't know this reconciling work of God today, I do invite you to know. I invite you to know this peace of being reconciled to God. And if you have questions, concerns, feel free to talk to me. Talk with one of the other elders. Be happy to show you the Christ who is in the Scriptures. This all-authoritative book here that we hold most dear. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your scriptural authority. Thank you for it being possible that we can repent. Thank you for justifying us by faith alone. Lord, we give the remainder of this time to you. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds to your word, your truth. It causes us to, to repent of our sins. causes us to lift you up. causes us to praise you. causes us to, to be bold with our faith. causes us to be bold with this message, this gospel, this good news that we have. We put this day in your hands. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons at podbean.com. Search Grace Baptist Church China Grove to find us. You can also find us on Apple Podcast. Search Grace Baptist Church China Grove. You can also join us at the South Rowan YMCA, 950 Kimball Road, China Grove, North Carolina. We meet on Sunday mornings at 930 for fellowship and service starts at 10. Thank you for listening and remember to be intentional in making disciples this week.